This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Australia's relationship with China has been in sharp decline, fueled by a critical government agenda and a hostile media environment. The trust, warmth, and confidence that there was towards China is at a record low, and the majority of Australians now see it as a major security threat. Here to discuss how Australia got to this point and what, if anything, can be done about it is Dr. David Brophy, a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history from the University of Sydney and author of China Panic, published by La Trobe University Press. Thank you for joining me today, David. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the invitation. So in 2014, Chinese President Xi Jinping came to Australia, uh, signed a fair trade agreement and addressed a joint sitting of parliament hailing it as a boosting of the relationship between Australia and China. And it's hard to believe that that was seven years ago and several prime ministers ago for Australia. David, the relationship has undeniably moved on from that point. And I was wondering if you could begin by discussing Australia's current sentiment towards China and how you account for such a a rapid change in the relationship. I mean, the current sentiment, as you pointed out, is pretty negative, both at the government level and at the level of public opinion. And I think the factors behind those two different things could be distinguished to some extent. I mean, I think that the the tensions that have existed and are coming to the fore have been present there for decades. I I see those kinds of moments like you described in 2014 or, you know, continuing into 2015 as not so much a sign that Australia was on one particular track and then diverged radically to another, but that there was a certain equilibrium in the relationship in which security concerns were balanced out by this desire to continue profiting from the relationship with China. And so what I described this process as is that that equilibrium breaking down. And it's clear from 2016 to 2017 that the security perspective came to gain the upper hand in in debates in Canberra and the effect of that shift in the the internal foreign policy debate and, and foreign policy is you know, offering a very elite preoccupation that then spilled out into the public uh, in various ways. You know, I first took notice of this situation in 2017 when the emphasis was very much on this concept of foreign interference, Chinese subversion of Australian politics, and that's that's still very much part of the discussion. You know, since then there's been a lot of water go under the bridge through COVID, which has exacerbated a lot of these uh, tendencies. But in some ways, we've returned to some of the more foundational questions in this discussion, um, the security questions, the questions of Australia's economic ties to China and the options that that presents Australia. But, you know, it's a cliche to say this, and it's it's sort of true every time that we say it. This is really at an all-time low at this particular point. I don't think the governments have seriously talked to each other for two to three years, depending on what level you look at. And clearly the public sentiment is very negative. And just to return to the point that I started at, I mean, I think that the question of the factors driving that government shift are a little bit different from the questions of, you know, what is shaping public sentiment? Because I think that, you know, one of the byproducts of this turn has been that Australian public has received more exposure to 
some realities about China, some of the, you know, the dire state of democratic rights and freedoms in China. And, and that kind of thing is obviously part of the explanation for why, you know, ordinary Australians are taking a more negative attitude to China. I, I don't think those things are really significant factor in the motivations for government policy, though. So how much of this do you think is strategy? And, and is it as a result of that, that China isn't as much of a threat to Australia as, as we'd currently believe? Well, I, I certainly think that the degree of a, any kind of threat to Australia is often exaggerated. Clearly, I don't think Australia is threatened militarily by China. And I think that the talk of China infringing on Australian sovereignty or having an intention to, to compromise Australian independence in some way, all of this I see is really overblown. You know, if we look at the structure of Australian foreign policy, we have to remember that really since colonisation, Australia has acted on the world in conjunction with a more powerful imperial patron that it has always tried to retain the interest of and the intention of, be that Great Britain initially or, or the United States. And the reality is, of course, that with China's economic growth, there is the potential that that will eventually translate into a diminished American influence in Asia. And a corollary to that, of course, will be diminished American interest in Australia and an attenuation of the Australia-America relationship. I think that the anxiety at that, I think that the course we're on now, you know, reflects certain habits that we've seen in the past in Australian engagement with Asia. That is... Yes, Australia is engaging directly with China on, on various issues, but it's not so much that Australia wants to get tough on China itself. It wants to be seen to be getting tough on China so as to catalyze a US-led response. And, you know, along with that, we see various efforts to consolidate the US military presence uh, in Australia, which is back in the news this week with possibility of increased troop presence. I think from an Australian elite point of view, people would have been perfectly happy to continue with the status quo as it was 10 years ago, just selling as much stuff to China as possible from behind a protective wall of American steel. <laughs> the problem for people in Canberra is that there's a sense that that strategy might have reached its use-by date, and therefore Australia wants to step up and do more to demonstrate that it's willing to contribute to some kind of US-led containment strategy towards China. So taking it into mainstream sentiment, while much of the paranoia of China's actions are being driven by right-wing interests, there are many on the left that have problems with China's democratic stance and with human rights actions, and they are finding a lot of overlap in the sentiment and perhaps a lot of common ground there. As a historian of the Xinjiang province and an expert on the Uyghur people, what do you think of this convergence? Is it in some ways, not in the stronger term maybe, that the enemy of my enemy is a good ally to have? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. I, I think that it's understandable in many ways that people have that kind of reaction because, you know, we have been through this period of quote-unquote uh, engagement in which people who were pointing to the repression going on in China really struggled to get a word in to the discussion. The situation has opened up the possibility for people, be they... Anglo-Australians like myself, concerned about the situation for people like the Uyghurs or, you know, these exile communities, these emigre communities and dissidents and so on, uh, to get a platform that they wouldn't otherwise have. It's very natural, I think, that people are taking advantage of that. And, I, you know, I don't fault people who want to do that. To go back to an earlier point, you know, foreign policy is this very elite 
undertaking, it does tend to get dominated either by corporate interests or by security interests. It's an undeniable fact that a corporate-led engagement approach towards China is, you know, is not one that prioritizes human rights and democracy. You know, so my book is very much not about you know, simply arguing for a return to that kind of perspective. What it is saying, though, is that you know, the hawkish security perspective also is not a vehicle for the advancement of human rights and, and democracy. There's a critique that comes from a certain direction and says that, you know, the West is just instrumentalizing these issues to hit China. You know, obviously, that's true to a certain extent. But I think we also have to say that even in this state of heightened tensions, the plight of people suffering repression inside China is really not very high on the list of priorities, um, even now. I mean, I think a lot of what Australia is doing is kind of going through the motions, you know, putting its name on certain statements, wants to be seen to be standing alongside the US, certain issues, you know, maintaining the solidarity of the five eyes and so on, on these kinds of things. There's a strategic motivation for that kind of thing, which I, I see as fairly separate to a genuine concern for, you know, the well-being of people inside China. But, the, you know, the task for someone like me to come to this discussion is, you know, not to poo-poo the instinct that people have to take advantage of this situation to advance these public awareness of these issues, but to, you know, try to make the case that there are actually better strategies to do that than throwing in one's lot with conservative China hawks. Mm. All right, then. So you've dropped the word strategies then. So I'm going to ask you, what is the hook of your book? Where are the strategies which you present as the tagline says here, an alternative to paranoia and pandering? Well, I think we have to come to terms with the fact that China is a political reality. There's a certain logic behind the confrontational strategy. I don't think that the hawkish position should just be written off as delusional strategy. I think that there is a real risk that if we don't advance, you know, something that looks better and more attractive to just going back to business as usual with China, the people will be successful in yoking a concern for rights and freedoms inside China with a get tough military and diplomatic strategy. So in a sense, my alternative is really something quite simple. When people are complaining about China's activities, just extrapolating the principles that are involved there and actually advancing them in a more consistent and coherent fashion. You know, I don't begrudge people who might be anxious about the possibility that China is going to behave in a more hegemonic fashion in its neighborhood. I just don't think the solution to that is a hypocritical promotion of American and Australian hegemonic behavior, be it in the Pacific, in our immediate neighborhood, or in Asia. We need to be talking about strategies that actually contribute to constraining the aggressive and self-aggrandizing habits of, of great powers. You know, that's going to involve strategies to diffuse conflicts, to disarm the region. These are not options that are immediately on the menu when you look at mainstream politics um, in a lot of countries in the world today. But I think that you know, when you look at the grassroots and, and civil society organizations and ordinary people across the region, I think that the position that, you know, we can, you know, simultaneously prosecute the cause of peace and disarmament while standing up for victims of repression and against authoritarianism, 
I think there's a constituency out there for that, but it's it's going to require all of us in all of our countries to actually put pressure on the political system and open up this foreign policy debate so that that perspective can actually get through. Otherwise, we will zigzag between a let's just shut up and do business with China or China is our mortal enemy, you know, left to its own devices. You know, those are the two options that our... Um, our political elites tend to present to us. Mm. And between zigging and zagging, I think we're zagging at the moment. Definitely. I can't see a zig, though, on the horizon at all. That could change quite quickly. Mm. But I was wondering uh, just about the pace of change. Your book was originally, Mm. if I understand correctly, and we've been talking about doing a book launch with you for quite a while, Mm. originally meant to be published in the middle of last year. Yeah. So is there material that has subsequently come up that you've gone, oh, Look, editors and publishers at Latrobe Press and Black Ink, I just want to put this extra paragraph in here. This needs to be adjusted. Or I really wish that I had time to put this in before they that, you know, sent it off to the printer. That's what you described was, that was what the final stages of editing uh, were like <laughs> uh, a little bit. Um, we basically finalised it just before the government pulled the trigger on the, um, the Foreign Relations Bill, a uh, now Foreign Relations Act. And tore up the the Belt and Road Memorandum in Victoria. That was the last thing that made it in. And then it was about a fortnight after that that um, Peter Dutton and Mike Pizzullo came out with their Drums of War stuff. I missed that. And maybe it was a little bit ambitious on my part. COVID initially pushed it back. And I think it probably would have dated a little quicker had I released it sort of in the midst of the the outbreak of the, the COVID pandemic, because you probably remember... The discussion was a little bit all over the place uh, at that time. You know, there were people talking about how this was a rupture, this was going to slow China down. That was sort of quickly set aside. And this sort of anxiety that, uh oh, COVID is actually allowing China to get the jump on us. And obviously, COVID has had a huge impact on questions of anti Chinese racism in Australia. So, on. so in a sense, I felt, you know, it was probably better to, to put it out at the point I did. I mean, there's always flare-ups going on, but the last few months have actually been, I would say, relatively quiet in terms of big movements. I suppose people have sort of been waiting a bit to get a sense of what Biden's policy settings would be. I'm glad that things didn't deteriorate seriously. (laughs) Not just for the sake of the book, though. All right. Now, it's quite obvious that I haven't asked any questions about America, and I have left that on the table because there's a couple of questions in the Q&A. So we will turn to the audience now. Our first question asker, who is uh, Colin Hesseltine. Can you hear me, Colin? Yeah, David, I just finished reading your book and found it interesting. The thing that struck me most is that, as I understand it, you're suggesting that uh, the Australian government has effectively blown up the relationship with China as part of a deliberate strategy uh, aimed at encouraging the US to stay engaged in Asia. On the other hand, you you would have read those recent Max Such articles in the view, which suggested it's really more a matter of government ineptitude and ignorance, simply not realizing what the consequences of pushing back hard against China would be. I must say I'm maybe with many years experience in government, I'm more attracted to the second view government and aptitude and ignorance, but um, can you reconcile these two viewpoints? Hmm. Yes, 
Thanks for bringing up those such articles. I thought they were interesting. I basically read them with a little bit of anxiety because I didn't have an insider's perspective on what I was talking about. But I felt in the end that his basic analysis of the thinking in Canberra was consistent with what I was saying. And he does say that they had expected a certain amount of economic backlash. Now, whether they expected it to the degree that has come, I mean, I'm not sure that Morrison really wanted to end up in the position that he did, where he was sort of having to talk to quote-unquote like-minded countries and, and ask them if they'd buy a bit more of our stuff. Probably not the most comfortable position for him to have been in. At the same time, I think that the government is very good at using these kinds of conflicts to then continue its lobbying strategy internationally to go and say, look, here's what China's doing to us. You know, we clearly can't live with an aggressive China like this. Look at what they're doing to Australia. You need to get behind us. Australia is the front line. We are the canary in the coal mine. All of this language that gets wielded to emphasize Australia's importance in the wider US-China, West-China rivalry. I do think that there's a strategic dimension to that. Going back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think that Australia is all that invested ultimately in the fate of what goes on up in Asia. You know, the priority is what it's always been is to, to maintain the US presence in the immediate region and the relationship, you know, the perception in Washington that Australia is an important country for, for US interests. And because people imagine that that gives Australia a seat at Washington's table and, and so on. So if the narrative becomes, look, China is going after Australia more zealously than any other country, Australia is the place where America must stand up to China, I think people in Canberra actually see that as a good thing. Okay, uh, the next question that we'll take is from Tess Newton-Kane. Hi, thanks, Matt, and thanks, David. Hi, Tess. Hi, thanks, Matt, and thanks, David. You did touch on the issue of how this conversation, the subset of this conversation, that some of the most breathless parts of it have been in relation to what may or may not be happening in the Pacific. What do you think are the options or what are the opportunities to change and improve the nature of that debate, whether it's by political leaders, media, commentators or, or others that can make it just something that's a bit a bit less breathless and a bit more grounded in nuance and a better of what matters for people in the Pacific. Indeed. I mean, I think that the starting point really has to be amplifying the voices of people in the Pacific. And I've never been a Pacific expert, but one of the parts that I actually really enjoyed about doing this book was trying to get my head around some of these local contexts and, you know, finding people who have all sorts of different perspectives on the situation there. You know, I really wish there was a way that we could bring those kind of voices to the forefront of the discussion here in Australia. It's just, it's just so frustrating. You know, the ABC does a decent job, SBS, occasionally. But, you know, particularly in the mainstream, the way the Pacific is just presented as this sort of great game battleground. You know, unfortunately, we have strategic commentators who are, you know, embracing that kind of language here in Australia as well. Now, apart from that, all Australians, I think, have a certain responsibility here to keep a very close eye on what Australian actors are doing in these countries. I mean, really what I'm presenting here is a you know perspective in which wherever we are in this global escalating 
situation. Like, I just think the logic of the situation is driving Australia very often to behave in almost exactly the same way as it accuses China, you know, in the way that you're using finance um, with very little transparency, have these screaming headlines about China building military bases when, you know, Australia is the one that is actually pushing to construct new military bases in the region. And obviously this is all connected to very deep issues regarding, you know, the role of the resources extraction uh, in the region and obviously climate change now. I have a grassroots perspective on these things. You know, I, I do ultimately put my faith in civil society and doing what we can to strengthen connections between people in Australia and people in the Pacific who, who share these perspectives. But I don't think there's a silver bullet, obviously. All right. Um, we've got a, a couple more questions, if you're okay to take them, David. Um, Absolutely. We'll go with one from Brian Timms. Yeah, good day, David. Thanks for that. Look, um, it seems to me we've got a very good example just recently of the cybersecurity revelations. Okay, and you have presented uh, two, I think, uh, opposing strategic approaches, black and white, and you're opting for a middle of the road. Here's an example of um, a serious issue. How would you deal with this in um, a more reasoned way than perhaps you've observed to date? Mm. Yeah, look, the cyber stuff is obviously really difficult because we're never privy to the information on which any government statement is is being based. And I mean, I will preface what I say by saying that I don't think we should always just take government pronouncements at face value. Having said that, yeah, it may be the case that they have something here. My basic assumption is that everyone's hacking everyone. We know that Australia has spies in China. Presumably there is cyber activity coming out of Australia directed towards China. America has a history of offensive cyber activity that's been, been exposed to a certain degree. It's part of the mix. And presumably governments monitor each other's activities and there is potential for escalation in this situation. And there's also potential for a, a drawdown. And I think that that will obviously depend on wider perceptions of the direction of the rivalry. If China comes to the conclusion as it economically advances towards great power status, inevitably going to trigger a hostile Western response. And, and that is the perspective of the hawkish wing of the strategic discussion uh, in China. You know, then unfortunately, you know, escalating cyber attacks is probably something that we could anticipate. So I, I don't think it can be carved out as a separate issue and dealt with away from that wider discussion. As much as it troubles me that China might be doing that kind of thing, I'd like to ask Australia's security community, would they really be confident if there was a, an omnipotent being who could see all of the cyber activity that was going on and, and weigh up, you know, who was doing how much, <laughs> you know, would they really be confident in having that all exposed and, you know, that we would turn out to be the good guys and China, the bad guys? I, I don't think it's that simple. So just as a bit of a closer, it seems like a lot of your book is going with the proviso that China has no real bad intentions to Australia as long as Australia is the same with China. I'm kind of wondering what the motives you're under the assumption of are there, because it seems like a lot of these things as a middle of the road power that Australia is are taken out of our hands a bit. Look, I think China has preferences for Australian political direction, just as Australia has preferences for the way it would like China to behave. This is just a normal part of 
diplomacy. If you read the strategic analysis in China through 2014, 2015, 2016, I mean, China was still relatively optimistic about its relationship with Australia. It said, there's no basic conflict of interest here. There's no reason why we can't get along. I mean, I think that that in theory would probably remain the um, Chinese viewpoint. You know, I think it has pegged Australia as a country that is anxious at the potential decline of American dominance and is now seeking to play a more active role in, in upholding that. Therefore, China sees that as hostile behaviour. I mean, we have to remember that before China retaliated, Australia had essentially been making policy on the basis that, you know, for a couple of years from Malcolm Turnbull's turn, that China was a dangerous country. Business as usual with China could not continue. It wasn't just talking in that way domestically. It was, it was sending that message out into the world. And, you know, there's only so long you can do that before the, the country that you're talking about starts to view you with a certain amount of distrust. That's where we've got to now. I think China was actually relatively slow to retaliate. Ultimately, it seemed to be the COVID inquiry that triggered things. I see this is very much contingent on the circumstances of the last few years. I certainly don't buy the perspective that China is in a position to or has any desire to exert any military-backed hegemony down to Australia. I mean, I think anything is possible in the future. I think that if great power competition remains the guiding principle for the US, well, China will respond in kind. And that, that will, I think, exacerbate the instincts of China to try to lock down parts of the region, try to push back America further. And we're already seeing it in the spheres like the tech industry and so on. That is leading to a certain bifurcation of global circulations and global politics. That's not the kind of world that I want to see, but I don't think it's inevitable that that's where we're going to end up. Okay, and uh, we might uh, leave it there. Thanks to everyone for your great questions. David Brophy's book, China Panic, published by La Trobe University Press. Uh, very good read. So thanks for your time today, David. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. You can follow David Brophy on Twitter. He is at Dave underscore Brophy. And I'm Matt Smith. And thanks for listening.